Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In 1936, Kansas City native Charlie Parker took to the stage at 16 years old and played so poorly that Count Basie's drummer threw a cymbal at his head. The act encouraged the saxophonist to become one of the hardest working musicians to ever live, and years later, Parker changed the music world forever. Since then, the music scene in Kansas City has gone through lots of changes, and this is a show dedicated to modern-day musicians who live and play in the pairs of the plains. From Tribune Audio Network, I'm Kendall Swank, and this is the Crazeology Podcast. It's Sunday morning, and for millions of people around the world, it's time to go to church. They walk in, say hi to some people they know, it's time to sit down and wait for things to begin. The pastor walks out, bows towards the altar, then takes a seat waiting for the music to stop. It's silent for a few seconds, and then the pastor stands, walks towards the pews, and greets the congregation before telling them what song they're about to sing. Then, it's time. If you've never been in a room where more than 20 people are singing the same song, there's something special that happens. All those voices, all those tones and pitches, they create something that's not normally heard, and it's sacred. And it's not just in church settings. Some of the greatest bands in the world also have this effect on people. They create this sense of awe that has the sound of sacredness. I do have to admit, that's the word that Kevin Morby used to describe the band Shy Boys. Sacred. And he's not totally wrong. My guest today is Kyle Roush from the band Shy Boys. But before we get to today's episode, I want to give you a quick sense of the music of what we're talking about. This is Miracle Grow by the band Shy Boys. Said I can't believe it. Should we come leave it in the ground? Bend it over with a ladder. Keep it from the piggy sniffing with their noses pressed against the dirt. Digging truffles out my bedroom door. Gotta keep, Gotta keep it safe inside the Secret button off the street, we let it grow Six or seven feet outside my window Getting high a daily, said I'm sick of waiting Cut and dry, hang it up inside my brother's door Got a key, oh, got a key Inside the tells me that Shy Boys formed kind of slowly. The band originated with Kyle and his brother Colin playing music together, and the rest of the pieces slowly came together, and eventually they recorded their self-titled album. The current lineup in Shy Boys came together with the creation of their second album titled Bell House. The difference in between the sound of the two albums is like night and day. I don't know if it was an intentional decision. I mean, we definitely didn't want to do like sort of the dream pop thing twice. Um, And the first record was... I mean, it was just kind of, the first record, we didn't really have any anticipation or expectations. We were just, 
um, we were just playing local shows and having a decent time and figured we'd make a record of the songs. And um, I think by the time the second album was like happening, we actually had fans and, um, you know, the potential to maybe move up the ladder and whatnot. And so um, we, we were just trying to find well, a way to keep us interested. And, um, I think drowning everything in reverb, like we did on the first record, just wasn't as interesting the second time around, even though I still like the first record a bunch. Um, I think that we were just trying to push our boundaries, you know, and have a little bit more, um, articulate and intimate, um, like relationship with the sound. And when, when you drown everything in reverb, it, it sounds so far away. And, and you, I think you, we really wanted to try and be conscious of like bringing the sound really close so you can hear all the little mistakes that we make or imperfections in our voice. So it feels more honest in a way. Well, and then your third album or not third album, you've, you've released some singles and some uh-huh. other stuff since then. Yeah. And even then it sounds like you guys continue to evolve and yeah, I think that'll just continue to happen. Um, I don't imagine, I don't imagine that we'll be doing things twice. Um, just because it's more interesting and more fun and, um, you know, it's kind of a dangerous game, I guess, cause you don't want to alienate the fans you have, but I think it would be worse to just give fans the same product over and over again. Right. So, so let's talk about one of the songs off that, um, that you've released as the single dim the light. Uh-huh. What's kind of the story behind that one? Cause a lot of your guys story or song titles or seem to be something that happened in your life. Uh-huh. So what, what's the deal with dim the light? Um, well, um, lyrically things like the lyrics for the songs always come about at the very, very end, like very last thing we do. Um, right before we record vocals. Um, so thematically, <laughs> that song is kind of, um, it's kind of about, well, how do I say it? That feeling when, when you walk into a room or like, so we're, you know, I'm 33 now and, and we're playing a lot of shows with like 19 and 20 and 22 year olds and maybe feeling a little bit out of place now. Um, I think that's kind of about like walking into a room and being afraid if maybe your like male balding pattern is showing. <laughs> so you dim the light. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so let's actually take a quick second and let's listen to that one. Okay. Don't try to see the stampede. I only 
you and your brother Colin um, both grew up in the church mm-hmm. and we're singing in choirs and mm-hmm. obviously that's a great way to learn harmonies. Why did you guys decide that you wanted your music, you know, your 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 modern music mm-hmm. to have those similar elements of harmonies and especially I mean you have a five piece yeah. harmony set. Yeah. Um I don't think that it was how do I say we it wasn't like intentional for per se. Um I think that like we growing up both of my parents are musicians and so and I literally was singing harmonies before I could tie a shoe. So it wasn't necessarily that we were going for something. It's just that it's in me. Uh, harmony, like melody and harmony is kind of just, um, I think it would be more effort to not do it than it would be to, to do that with our songs. Um, and I think, you know, our story just happens to have an evangelical background and, um, I think that it shapes you in ways that you don't even understand until you're way older. So what would be those, some of those things that you feel like the church really shaped you? Uh, how long you got? (laughs) You got a little, a little time. (laughs) Um, well, when you grow up in it, like, you know, my, my grandparents, um, were basically like part of a founding members of, of a church in Blue Springs, um, Southern Baptist Church, and my mom was the music director there, and um, my whole extended family, or most of them, were in the choir every Sunday, and when my brother and I got to be like 11 and 12 or 13, we started playing um, the worship music on Sunday mornings in the service, and um, my mom would play piano, and my dad would play guitar, I would play drums, and my brother would play bass, and um and then we would do like the special music and it was just like um, an all-encompassing sort of like um, lifestyle to have your mom, you know, just like most kids, you know, um, at that time, dad was gone working a lot. And so we would be hanging out with mom at church because it was cheaper than getting a, a babysitter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we would just spend you know, thousands and thousands of hours at the church and, um, without getting too much into the, you know, socio-political side of things that can definitely have an effect, um, on your worldview. And, um, I think like our harmonies is kind of like a way to accept that maybe and, 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 um, and singing is a <laughs> singing's a it's a good thing. It's not all bad, I guess. And like to be able to sing and maybe show like a little bit of homage to that, whereas maybe I would have hateful things to say, um, is a positive and you know, try to stay positive. Is there a direct link between the music that you were playing in the church growing up mm-hmm. compared to the stuff that you guys are doing with Shy Boys? Definitely. I think, um, and we've we've kind of talked about this with Connor before, because Connor also grew up. Um, his the the pastor at his church when he was growing up um, ended up founding IHOP here in Kansas City, and they're like charismatic Christians, and it's a pretty intense brand of Christian. Um, and Ross, another member, was also um, really kind of heavily influenced at that time of his life too. And I think it's really common for people in the Midwest to have that type of upbringing. Um, but especially like people trying to do contemporary Christian music, um, 
it's kind of like pop songwriting 101. It's like intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, mm -hmm. chorus, outro. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you kind of like, especially playing that every Sunday, got a, like a bird's eye view of how to construct a, a simple pop song that's also meant to like invoke an emotion out of somebody. And I, I do think that that's a huge part of how Shy Boys are a band today, for sure. So I mentioned it once before, uh, you guys lived in a house in Bell Street and everything that I've seen wasn't the greatest living situation. No, not, yeah. not a nice house. Yeah. Um, what were those days like for you guys being, you know, you're constantly around your bandmates, your family, mm -hmm. these, these people who shape you, but it's not like you can just walk away from them at any point. Yeah. It was, um, it was, it was, we lived there for five years. Um, from the ages of like, I was probably like 25 to 30 years old, um, which are like, I think generally a pretty tumultuous times in people's lives. They're trying to figure out who they are and like what, what their path or what, you know, their little plot of land in this world will be. Um, so it was a really like shaping time for me. Um, it was really, really hard time. Um, I think you make, you know, I don't want to like, I don't want to get into anything woe is me because ultimately if you are trying to be a musician, you make that decision yourself. But, you know, the story is mostly poverty and how do I survive? Um, how do I like make a living and also try to stay true to what I actually want to do with my life? Um, and then like, um, family things that I probably just won't really get too far into. And, um, you know, maybe going a little bit too hard and in, in the substance side, just a little bit. Um, and I think like, just like trying to come to terms with like, you made this choice for your life and, and be okay with it. And, um, but on the other side, like living with Connor and Colin was, you know, I think the farther I get from it will be like some of the best years of my life because we got to to do so many things together that, um, you know, that's the trade off for for living the musician's lifestyle is you get to you get to kind of do things that maybe people would be jealous of on surface um, and get to have sort of exciting memories and things of that nature. And um, we'd throw a bunch of shows there and and people would just come and show up and not knock on the door and just walk right in and hang out. And I really loved that. And, um, you know, the house was shabby, but that there's a lot of shabby houses around here that people live in. So right. it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, you had a hole I, in the floor of your kitchen. Yeah. Um, it was weird. Uh, <laughs> the guy that our landlord just decided apparently that the only decent place to get to the basement was through a hole in the floor directly in front of the refrigerator. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was not safe at all. Um, the house was like, just like pickup sticks put together, something seemingly holding that place together. And then it was really disgusting because once we moved out, he wouldn't give us our like $500 deposit back. This is like five years of faithfully paying rent 
on a place that we shouldn't like, which is the same story a lot of people I believe in this town have. But um, immediately after we left, and he kept our measly five hundred dollars, he sold the house to to an investor, and they flipped it and then sold it for like triple its value. You wow. know, because it was kind of our house was kind of like the ugly house in a relatively nice or like quickly changing neighborhood on the west side. Off the album. Bell Street, you guys have the song Take the Doggy, and Mm -hmm. it's about a a situation when you were living there and your next door neighbor. They they were, it was an abusive situation for the dog. And so, how did you guys find a way to make that into a song? Uh, I, well, that's funny because we were, we recorded that song like, you know, sort of years after the fact, but it was, it was a situation where, you know, it's it's hard to you know it's like I don't I don't know if our old neighbor is going to be listening to this podcast, <laughs> um, but he the dog was just like always tied up in the backyard and seemingly never allowed to have human you know love and contact. But I, I don't know that for sure. Um, and it was just you know it was a skinny, dirty dog, just kind of like typical. I'm going to leave it on a chain in the backyard for most of its life. And so Connor um, and myself from time to time would sneak across and give the dog some food <laughs> out of the refrigerator, maybe some like bologna or turkey or Something, whatever we yeah. had, you know, and give him some pets and whatnot. And um, eventually that like our, that neighbor ended up moving out um, about a year before we did, but, and he took the dog, but that song is mostly about a daydream of like leaving Bell House and taking the dog in the night and not coming back ever. So, is that because just the situation? Because you wrote it years later, is that because of how bad the situation was when you were there? Like just the the environment of you know you have this neighbor who's not taking care of their dog that you can tell your house isn't the greatest in the world. Mm-hmm. Um. I think that like we we decided like at a certain point to thematically make the album about our experiences at Bell House and that was just a memory that kind of clicked as something that would be interesting to write about and so we we went with it or Connor wrote the lyrics to that one so that was his thought process I think. All right, let's check that one out too. Okay. food on the ground It said How quickly you scarf it down Hey bud Are you getting fed? Eat up Before you're alone Comes home and see
you're enjoying this episode of the Creatology Podcast, make sure to click subscribe to keep up with new episodes. Plus, make sure to check out other podcasts from the Tribune Audio Network, including those from Fox 4 Kansas City. We have new episodes of Abby Ass with Abby Eden, or check out our newest podcast from Kim Burns and Shannon O'Brien called It's a Date, where they talk about dating in the modern world. Now, let's get back to my interview with Kyle Rausch from the band Shy Boys. It's not a rags to riches story i mean you've kind of said obviously yeah. being a traveling musician you know you guys are working other jobs you're still trying to um still trying to make music your full-time thing mm-hmm. how much different now is it than when it was the situation with you guys back at bell street it's it's um it's really different in a lot of ways but it's also like exactly the same um the, the, the difference is like expectation when we were writing our first record, we, we had like, I think it was like an album of just like, it doesn't even matter at all. If we make it, we're just making a record for fun. And, um, for whatever reason, I think it really took off in Kansas city and then like kind of slowly spread out from there. And we did a few tours of which I booked and, um, if you haven't done it before, it's hard to explain how difficult that is. But um, there's so many bands, you know, out here trying to to make it. And um, when you're booking your own shows, you're just basically blind emailing and messaging people, trying to get them to to help you put a show together in their town. And they're usually people that have messages every day from somebody else trying to get shows in their town and so it's Mm -hmm. it's an exhaustive effort just to put two weeks together um and i think like we we got really lucky because at the right moment we we sort of caught the attention of people that actually had connections Mm -hmm. in the industry um and like i think we had been doing it DIY style for so long that we were just like, I was burnt out on booking tours and I was just fine with like maybe not doing that anymore. And if something came our way, we would do it. But, um, but now like after we like finished recording bell house before we had released it, it got to who is our now manager. So I guess like the, to, to bring it back, like the main, the main difference like starts with us, doing what so many other Midwestern bands do, which is you see a band that you like and that maybe you want to model your your route after and you try to play a show with them. And um, we did that many times and we did that with this band Mild High Club, who's um, a Chicago and Los Angeles band. Um, we drove up to Sioux Falls to play with them because they were playing at a place that happened to be friend of ours just from booking my own shows in the past there. And, Mm -hmm. um, they were gracious enough to let us play. And so we played with mild high club that night. And, um, for whatever reason, I think that they were, you know, impressed or they liked it and they passed that word on to their manager. Hey, this band's pretty good. Check them out or whatever. Then like fast forward a year, and I get a random email from Josh, who's now our manager. He's like, hey, do you want to do these dates with Mild High Club? Um, they were th- they thought of you guys or whatever. And so we did like a week and a half or so run with them. And uh, at the same time, it just happened like that we had just finished recording Bell House. <clears throat> right as that tour is happening. So um, 
Josh was just like, hey, do you have any new music that you're working on or whatever? And I was just like, oh, matter of fact, <laughs> <laughs> buddy, um, we have an album. And I sent it to him and, and he really liked it. Um, in fact, you know, he said it made him cry. And I'm, I choose to believe that. Um, anyways, like, so he kind of just like started working on our behalf little by little it wasn't like anything official and um at the same time we were kind of sending the album out to different labels just to see what would happen mm -hmm. and we kind of like it all just kind of fell in place so fast like um the label we're on polyvinyl decided to work with us um who we'd been fans of for a long time and we have friends on that label and i think kind of helped nudge our way into the door a little bit um, it's, it, it's such a long process. I think like it's Kansas city is a great music town, but the industry is not here. And f for the most part, it's still really the industry that controls everything as far as who makes it and who doesn't. Sometimes mm -hmm. you have your flash in, in the pan situations and streaming has changed things a little bit. Um, but like, it was so weird. We went from like full DIY the like for the entirety of my music career to all of a sudden within like two months having a manager and a booking agent for the US and a booking agent for Europe and a label and a lawyer you know and just like all these parts coming together um, and then and then like the journey starts all over again you know and it had been four years since we put out our first record so in reality, like nobody really knew, like we had had fans around the country, but it's, it's such a smaller scale. Like you don't really realize that like, you know, how far you have to go still to be, um, I don't know, profitable, I guess, if we're just mm -hmm. going to talk about mm -hmm. money. And so we went from like, it would take me months to book a two week tour to I, our, our booking agent is like the vice president of ground control, which is one of like the main indie booking agencies in the country. And now I think in the past year, like if I count it up, it'll be close to a hundred out of town shows that we've oh, done. Wow. And That's a lot. it's a lot. Yes. And, um, you know, careful what you wish for. Right. <laughs> um, but it's been so, so great. Um, I kind of like, I kind of assumed that it wouldn't, wasn't going to happen that way for us. And then it just like did all of a sudden. And it just happened because, you know, we said yes to playing shows that were inconvenient. And, you know, we drove five or six hours to Sioux Falls to play a one night show for like 50 bucks or something like oh, that, you wow. know, and just do that sort of thing countless times. And eventually if you're, if you work hard at the music and your band is good and people will probably like it and, you know, you just got to be patient. What do you think would be like the difference? Um, what do you think would be the difference between a show that you guys put on here in Kansas City and then something else when you're out on the road? Oh, uh, in what way? I guess. Um, I mean, just like by the numbers of people. Well, yeah, let's, let's start with that aspect of it. But also, I mean, do you do different songs just because you're here and you mm. have 
people mm-hmm. who have maybe known you longer, or mm-hmm. do you, are you guys changing up um, because you played here so often that you play different stuff here, but you kind of play a standard set on the road? I think the main difference is that we don't play in Kansas City a lot anymore. Um, we have there are like multiple other bands um, that are comprised of the members of Shy Boys, um, like Connor's band, the ACBs, is simply members of Shy Boys as as ACBs. Um, and same with another band, Full Bloods, which is Ross's band. Um, we play like we play more shows as that group now than as Shy Boys because um, I think. And wisely, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to play a ton of local shows anymore because people kind of already know who we are. Um, so we try to make them count. And then, yeah, we'll play a few songs um, in at local shows that maybe, maybe wouldn't play elsewhere, like this song, Submarine, on the first album is just kind of like a short little half song that um, people for some reason really like, but it's hard to... If you've never heard us before, it's kind of like, why did you just play that song? <laughs> so when we're uh, like out on tour, we try to just, you know, as much as we can, give them the hits and try to keep, you know, playing slow and quiet songs is really dangerous when you're on the road. Um, sometimes it can be like a wonderful, magical experience. And other times, you know, you start seeing one by one people looking down at their phones and then maybe walking off to get a drink and whatnot. And um so we just try to keep it as moving as quickly as possible and, you know, one song after another and try to keep the hooks coming, <laughs> try to stay engaged in this digital world, baby. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, too, because uh, there's so many singer songwriters who I think also go in into traveling situations and a singer songwriter by trait is normally a quiet, mm-hmm. a, a quiet act. Uh, some are louder than others. Yeah. What's it like being on stage when you know that you don't have the full attention of the audience? People aren't up and dancing. They're not, Mm -hmm. you know, your music isn't necessarily what they came to see. Right. Yeah. It's tough. You have to learn to get um, thick skin. And I still work on that because some, you know, I don't, it's not like embarrassing anymore. It used to be, but, you know, after you've played, it's just so many shows, you know, you're going to have more than a few stinkers where nobody cares. Um, I think, you know, there's really nothing you can do about it and to get upset about it or to like be offended. It's just, it's not advantageous. Um, I have, I have, you know, I've failed in the past, you know, maybe said some things on the mic, um, but for the most part, you just run with it and you try to, you know, if we feel like we're losing the crowd, then we'll just skip a slow song and and go back to something that's more engaging. It's live shows is such a weird thing now. Like um, music is like s- such a broad thing, um, but I feel like so many people go to shows to be wowed by like big, huge light shows and tons of subwoofer underneath shaking your chest and like this like immersive like rock and roll experience but um i think that that really like doesn't do music justice because it's so much more broad than that and that sometimes i do get frustrated like feeling like 
God damn it, I have to play this like rock and roll song again just to make, you know, get people engaged. But as more and more people like the first, this most recent tour we just came home from, we were, we were the headliner and it was a nice experience to like have people coming specifically to see us as opposed to us like supporting a bigger act or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so we played a few more of the slower songs and sort of were able to set the aesthetic for ourselves, what we wanted. And it also really helps when people are coming to see you and they've by now heard our songs and like the slow songs too. So you don't like worry as much about losing the crowd, which was really great. Does your booking manager try and pick venues that he knows are going to be more sit down for an entertainment show rather than an up dancing or are you still playing bars and you're still playing the Um, the nightclubs? If we're headlining, we're still playing bars. I would say for the most part, um, I think it's like a mixture of, and our manager, Josh also has a heavy hand in this too, uh, which I really, really appreciate. Um, cause finding the right show, um, on the right day in the right city is really tough to do. Um, and it could make or break your show. If you if you play at a venue where people don't go just to hang out, then you have to work really hard at promoting the show to get people to go out of their way to go to the show, which which is a losing battle. Um, so I think finding the right place, like finding a place where people just enjoy being generally is a huge help. Um, we played at this place in Montreal called Brasserie Beauvienne or something like that. And... Um, it was just kind of like a small dark dive bar with like an old woman behind the bar and like popcorn, you know, and a jukebox and the bags of chips. That yeah, you can get, and like one disco ball, you know. Right. And um, it was great because it was a local haunt for people, and so a ton of people came out and like a ton of other musicians in Montreal came out to see us just because it was like, hey, here's this band Shy Boys that I like, or so, or maybe. I'm curious about or something like that, but it's at this bar that I like to go to anyway. So I'll just go, you know, and it ended up being a really good show. Um, and we're still like, we're still definitely like growing an audience. I don't know, you know, it's, it's all relative, you know, like I feel like we've broken through a few plateaus and we're working towards a few more now, but, Mm -hmm. um, to have like to have people from someplace fifteen hundred miles or two thousand miles away fill up a room to see your band because they've heard of you is pretty wild thing still for me to like come to grips with. Um, it's it's I love Kansas City so much, but it's a hard place to make it out of. Most of the things that influence people, most of the tastemakers are still on the coasts, and so. And honestly, like a lot of people have left Kansas City for that reason. And um, sticking around here was the hard thing to do, but I'm really glad that we did it. One of the things that I love about talking with musicians about their music is I get to learn some really cool stories that the songs are inspired by. Kyle told me the story behind the song Evil Sin, but I've decided not to include it in the episode. Some of the story was bad or there wasn't something I didn't want you to hear, but it's not Kyle's story to tell. It's his brother's. But you could probably figure it out if you listen closely enough. This is Evil Sin by the Shy Boys. Oh, 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 oh. 
that it was really interesting when I was reading up on you guys that even before the first album you didn't write lyrics until it was time to actually mm-hmm. record the album why did why did you guys decide to even go with lyrics I mean there's so many bands um I mean I guess not a ton of bands but like uh Seguera Rose is one that comes yeah. to mind where yeah. they do this really cool thing um but they kind of created their own language mm-hmm. and then they use a little bit of Icelandic and a little bit of English and mm-hmm. just make sound mm-hmm. that creates a very vocal experience so yeah. What if if vocals were something that was kind of the last thing to put into place? Why even have them? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if we've actually asked that of ourselves. I think it like ultimately, good lyrics can make a song better, and something that a lot of people relate to music through words, and then like the the words invoke an emotion, and then the music that's around them kind of helps like lift that up even more or shape it. Um, and I think if we didn't actually have like written words to the songs, then they couldn't maybe see their full potential, at least in like our world. Does your brother do most of the songwriting then? Yeah. Well, he, or lyric writing, I guess. Um, no, the lyric writing is a shared thing. Um, my brother is basically the one who like comes up with the bones Um, maybe he has a chord progression and like a melody. Um, and then we all get together and sort of turn it into a song. Um, and then like after all the instrumentals have been figured out and we've worked through all that, um, then we basically like 
listed out the songs we have and it's like, okay, I'll do lyrics for this one and this one, you do lyrics for this one and this one. And, um, it was basically split between my brother and I and Connor. How do you keep consistency for your product that you're putting out as musicians that even though you have three different people, three different life experiences writing them? Mm-hmm. Well, at least on Bell House, we we did like make the conscious decision to try to find themes that were based around our time together at Bell House. Mm-hmm. And for Colin and Connor and I, like our experience was like all together, you know, like for five years we lived together, we toured together, we played shows together. I worked with Connor a bunch. Um, you know, it's not like we were all pretty much in the same place at the same time for most of that five years. So, um, at least in terms of bell house, like those themes were, it, it, it feels like it's, congruent or synonymous with each other because we were all experiencing the same things together. Even though sometimes like that can be intense, like after being on tour for two or three or four weeks and then, you know, you, you'd pull your van into the driveway and instead of splitting ways, like most regular bands do, we just walked into the house together, which can be intense because that's, that's a lot of together time. Um, A lot of together time, which I mean, maybe that's like, the most thing I'm most proud of is that I still love these guys. Um, Cause it's, it's a lot of hard work to be that close with people. Were you guys also living with uh, Ross and Kyle? I live with Ross now. Okay. Um, but no, Kyle joined the band about a year before we moved out of bell house. Um, and Ross, um, Ross has always had his own place. And then when we moved out of bell house, um, I just moved in with Ross. So, so what is that? Um, does it feel like your relationships with, well, obviously your brother is going to be a very different relationship. Do you mm-hmm. feel like your relationship with Connor is different than your relationship with Ross and Kyle because you guys went through those shared experiences? Probably. Um, but I don't really, I try not to think of it that way. Um, I think that we all make an effort to, to have an equal footing with each other. I think there is a special bond that Colin and Connor and I, in a way, have simply because it started with the three of us and we lived together for so long. Um, but the farther we remove ourselves from it, the the less that is a factor and the more like we are a five-piece unit, um, you know, fairly democratic. Was it difficult to find the right people to be able to do your style of music since it's so harmony based or were you guys just right off the bat, you found people who could do these harmonies and sing and you just rolled with it? Uh, no, it's hard. Yeah. (laughs) We, it's, it's weird. Our songs are tricky. They're not like, they don't sound that difficult, but it is kind of difficult to, to sing them well and play them well at the same time, at least for an amateur musician. Um, and I mean, that's the reason, like, so even before Shy Boys was a band, um, my brother and Connor and I were 
just like getting together and learning oldies covers just oh. for fun as like maybe we'll do a couple shows, you know, throw a dance party and do some oldie songs. Like Motown? Uh, yeah, Motown or like even like doo-wop and early 60s pop okay. um, type stuff. And um, we were all singing the harmonies together, you know. And then I think that, that I think that's honestly like we were doing that before. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's been so long since like that was like seven or eight. I, we haven't had to look in a while, I guess, is what I'm saying. You know, like I've known I was in Connor's band in 2009 and I was always a big fan of his music because he's such a great singer and he writes amazing melodies um, that like it was a no brainer to get Connor on board. Um, and this is like eight years ago now. Mm -hmm. So um, the most of the vocals is still just the three of us and occasionally Kyle and Ross will also sing, but the bulk of like the structure of the harmonies when we write songs is still for the three of us. So when you record then, is it just you guys dubbing back on top of your already recorded tracks? Um, yes. The way we, the way we do it is like, um, well, at least the way we have done it in the past, we practice a bunch and then we would go in the studio and we would book like three days and we, we, uh, booked at West End, which is on 45th and State Line, and um, it's a really great room. And they also have reel-to-reel um, -reel tapes, so we tracked live to a tape machine or whatever, and kind of mixed it as best as we could, and brought it back home to like Ross's home studio, and we overdubbed the vocals uh, one by one on top of the instruments. So it's like a half live product, half studio overdub product um i think playing together is is um it's a challenging way to record songs but i think it really helps with what we're trying to do which is like play music that um that that calls for an emotional response you know and sometimes i think you can get away you can get too far away from that when you're tracking things one by one it it sounds a little too mechanical as opposed to like, especially as we're moving towards a future with technology and computers sort of like running every aspect of our lives to have a human made sounding thing with its flaws is, is nice to hear. Cause everything now is just kind of like to click tracks and regimented into fours and twos and blocks. And, mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, who knows, maybe we'll, you know, put on electronic record next. I don't know. But for the time being and for what we've done, <laughs> it feels good to, to just be a band and make songs. That's it for this episode of the Crazeology Podcast. Today was produced by myself with production assistance and editing from Mike Simpson. You can find more episodes at fox4kc.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just click subscribe to keep up with new episodes as they become available. Until next time, this is Something Sweet by the Shy Boys.